Okay, let's start as ever with um, any, any questions hanging on from the previous session. Others I'm sure will come in as we're talking, but any questions hovering over from the shapes, the triangles, the clouds, the Sermon on the Mount, other? Yeah, ah, of course. Mr. Gosling, as I shall now think of you. <laughs> Yes, the question is, so in in chapter 5, when it says, uh, everyone who divorces his wife except on grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, why is it it true that the woman is regarded as committing adultery if the man is the one who's responsible? And I think the answer is because in Jesus' understanding of marriage, that if, I mean, obviously you could say marriage is separated by death, and, but if, and marriage is separated by divorce following a legitimate reason, like in this case is sexual immorality. But if that hasn't happened, then in God's sight, the woman's still married. So if she marries someone else, that's adultery. It's not just fornication. That's what, I think that's what he's saying. Um, I know we don't believe that, <laughs> or by and large practice as if we do, but that I think is what he's saying. He's just saying, yeah, this marriage is still live. Like that's, otherwise that clause makes no sense. No, oh no, I, I think that is because implicitly she is she is going to need to marry. As in, if if you are a if you're a woman in a culture like that and you have been married and then your husband has left, you are your means of support is going to be you're going to need to marry again. And when you do, you will be adulterous, and so will the man who marries her. Um, so I, I think that's it's pretty stark, like because he d- he does see that he said effectively says if the marriage has not been legitimately dissolved, it's still in place. And I think we don't generally think that way. But I, th- I do think that's why he's not, I think he's kind of assuming it, but also teaching it. And to me, that clause is one of the most important clauses for seeing that Jesus' standards on divorce are higher than ours. Because without that clause, you'd say, well, obviously he's done something wrong, but she's free to do whatever she wants. But that's not what he says. So actually, he's holding the man responsible. He's like, your problem is you've made her an adulteress. So he's still blaming the guy. He's not, she's a victim of it. But it nevertheless would be adulterous for her to get married and even for her new husband, who presumably has never even met this man, to marry her. So the damage continues, and I I do think it's a very hard saying. And it it shows, I just, yeah, I think Jesus has a higher view of marriage and and a more demanding, a more rigorous view of the standards for divorce and remarriage than most of us, probably. I think it's, yeah, it's worth, you know... in our culture, it's almost like, well, that's, let's do the pastoral thing. And the pastoral thing is usually the fluffy thing in this particular case, right? I mean, I don't, don't think that's what the word means, but that's how we use it. But I think here, he's like, no, that's... If, if, you, if you would sign off on that, you are creating an, another adulterous relationship because the grounds for this divorce were not in place. I mean, it's a hard saying. You can hear the silence in the room. Like, that, you know, yes. Um, Obviously, that is potentially a huge can of worms that we could talk about for days, but which we won't. Um. 
Matthew 19, there is sexual morality. Yeah. No, and he does here too. He says, except on grounds of sexual morality. So he, twice, he, the exception clause is clear. Like, I don't think any, and I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not going to say there's no valid grounds for divorce because they're clearly, he's very clear that there is there. And I think you, I think you can see in Paul, Paul is in, and in 1 Corinthians 7 is envisaging another ground that Jesus doesn't mention but is nevertheless there, that of abandonment. And I, so I do think there are grounds. I'm just saying when those grounds are not there, we are generally still inclined to fudge it. Going, ah, oh, well, what can you do? And that's, that's, Jesus is like, no, you, this is committing adultery even in the new marriage. Um, and I just think that's worth letting weigh on us, really. I mean, it's just, just like we would take the lust thing seriously. You know, it's better to enter life than maimed than this. I think we would want to do the same here. Yeah. Yeah. I struggle with Paul. Was the, <laughs> every time you've asked a question, it's had something to do with Paul and Jesus. It was great. You should, um, you should write about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that obviously Jesus doesn't get into. So then if your pastoral question is, she, he shouldn't have... They, they, they never cheated. They fell out. They'd been living together for years. They didn't have a, it wasn't a very healthy marriage. In the end, they called it a day before we got to them. He left. We don't know where he is now. She's here now. She's met this guy. They've got married. What do I do now? I think at that point, you say, you honor you the, the marriage and you continue to... I, Jesus is not addressing what a pastor would do to the newly married couple who shouldn't have... She shouldn't have been divorced in the first place, but she is. But I think that's where the pastoral realities, 1 Corinthians 7, is helpful there. I mean, it's not quite, obviously, it's, it's using the text to mean something beyond what it does. But when Paul says that even the council, like, you sh- each person should remain in the state when they got called. Were you in this position? Okay, stay there. If you're in that position, don't, don't judge. I know he's not talking about marriage for people who are already believers. But I think that wisdom, to me, would apply. I don't think you then break up another marriage and cause another round of adultery to take place. I don't think that's wise, but I also don't think Jesus is saying that. I think we just have to draw on other precedents and wisdom to try and understand the best, best approach to them. But, but the marriage itself should not have happened, and the guy who left her the first time is to blame for it. That's what Jesus is saying here. Yeah, man, didn't think we'd get into that. It's kind of is it's heavy stuff though, isn't it? It's just and and it's I just think that's one of the most overlooked things Jesus says, isn't it? And where we just you know there, the, but there are as Steve said, there are several grounds. In fact, I tend to the, the A's of adultery, abuse, abandonment. I I found it in Thomas Cranmer, and it really weirdly, who has obviously got the wrote the wedding liturgy most of us use, um, maybe all of us use, but he was just really he's just really interesting where he gives his explanation of why legitimate divorces can take place. He gives five reasons, two, two of which are really about abandonment and two of which are really about abuse, and then there's adultery. One of the five reasons you can legitimately get divorced, Cramer says, is prolonged absence without news, which I just think is a, a, re, a really, really funny phrase. But actually, in his world, it was a thing. Like, guys would go off to France, they might be fighting them or whatever, and... And if the absence is too long and you don't report back, you, you basically have to conclude, I think he's just absconded. And then the wife is actually, at a, there comes a point where the church have to say, we think this, this man's left her and the woman can remarry. Which is just, but it was, it's actually got a love, there's a lovely sort of 
pastoral working through, and I think there's a, you, can, you can draw that from a combination of 1 Corinthians 7 and, and the text here. Um, so I'm not, I'm not a sort of rigorist, like, I'm not sort of John Piper, if, if you're both still alive, you cannot marry anybody else. I, I don't agree with him there, but I do think Jesus' standards for divorce are much higher than are often at least practiced and probably sometimes affirmed in, in modern churches. Prolonged absence without news. Like some of you guys text home now. <laughs> um, but it is. It's, I wrote an article on the... Th- if if it helped, actually, I summarised it on, the, on my, the Think Theology blog. Um, just Cranmer's reasons for divorce and remarriage. It's really... I mean, just, it just helps at times go, this is 500 years old from a guy who had a, about as kind of robust a theology of marriage as anyone ever has. And he's just really pastorally wise. And you have to translate, what's the equivalent of that now? Um, but it's, it's really, really insightful stuff. So just throw that out there for your consideration. Any, sorry? No, we just make it so Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every time there's a noise from that table. I don't know who allowed you guys all to sit together. Right, any other questions from the previous session? Okay, I'm relieved. I've escaped the, I've dropped the divorce bomb and moved on and lived to tell the tale, or at least so far. So some of you I've seen um, wielding copies of one of my, I'm, I don't know what, whether this will be my book of the year, but it's one of the two or three candidates um, so far. Um, John Stark's Outstanding but The Secret Place of Thunder. I, trading our need to be noticed for a hidden life with Christ. I, who was I seeing waving it earlier? Someone was, it was you, JPS. It is, it's fantastic. But what John does, and he's, he's not primarily, it's not only the Sermon on the Mount, but he's written a book really about the danger of performative spirituality and the importance of the secret devotional life in the life of Christ. And it's just it's a kind of beautiful devotional book that I just went through in my quiet times for a month or two and found so edifying and so helpful. And really it's drawing on the early part of chapter 6, the beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And we could meditate on that text and its implications in our culture for hours. Beware. Watch out. This is a thing in every culture. And in a culture with social media and phones on cameras, cameras on phones, immeasurably more so, I would say, than most cultures. Beware practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Sometimes you can't help practice your righteousness in front of other people. Many of us in the meeting lead public prayer meetings. And if prayer is a form of personal spirituality, there is no getting around. Jeremy is going to have to stand up in front of people and exhort people to pray and pray in front of them many, many times in a year. And he is practicing some of his righteousness in front of other people. But he's not doing it in order to be seen by them. He's not doing it to get, I don't think, he's not doing it to get credit. Sometimes you can't avoid it, right? I'm doing some of it now. I'm going, the fruit of my reading and study is coming out in this conference. He's not saying never show anybody your spiritual life in any way, because otherwise how would you disciple people in spiritual habits? But what he is saying is don't do it in order to be seen by them. And John is just very helpful. He just basically just draws out that theme in the teaching of Jesus, and it's beautiful. Um, but he, just, he, he does a very good analysis of the performativity of modern culture, which just strikes home, but in a very warm way. He's, not a, he's the opposite of a sort of hysterical... He pastors in Manhattan. Like he, so he lives in the most performative kind of place on earth, but he is very, very... And he's not hysterical about it. He just goes, this is just a thing, and we have to be aware of it, and we have to cultivate habits that kick against it and are mindful of it. 
And you probably you feel this at times, but there are a whole bunch of things you and I do that don't feel like they've really happened until we've shared them in some for, forum online and had other people respond to them. That's almost how we complete the experience. So you go for a meal, you take a picture of it, and it's, it's almost only when people start commenting on the meal that you feel like you've enjoyed the meal. I mean, it's just so weird, but it is also out there. It's, it's not in and of itself something that we were, you know, you're, not all of it's sinful, it's just... It's a very, very formative thing that we have to be very careful of. And, of course, he makes the point, in contrast, Christian spirituality flourishes in secret. Hence all the seeds and all the leaven and all the references to things being hidden in a dough. Or, you know, all that kind of stuff is there to say, this is actually the, the contrast between Christian spirituality actually flourishes, the true life in Christ flourishes in the very conditions that the performative modern world make impossible. So you have to find some ways of cultivating true spirituality without any performativity at all. And that, that's, that's not easy. I don't always get that line right at all. Like I'm, there's times I just sort of think, oh, so I've written this really interesting thing in my devotions. I've written it down. It's all in this text. I, I wonder, can I take a picture of that to show people what the word of God is saying? And I, and I still sometimes do. But then I find myself asking, but does that make it look like, hey, look at my spiritual life? But if I don't do it, does that, then it's actually quite hard to show people what I've found. And I also think that might be edifying. I find it a dilemma, but I'd rather have the dilemma than just breeze past and go, oh, no, this isn't an issue for me. Because, of course, it could be and, and, and often is. And uh, here's this lovely phrase. One of the chapters is called fruitful dormancy. Just like the, the fruitfulness of things being dormant, being under the ground, unseen, and just growing very, very in the dark where no one can see. And then he has this lovely, uh, another lovely point he makes. It talks about Matthew 6 teaches us about a fast within a fast. On the one hand, you're fasting from food. But on the other hand, you're fasting from the glory and praise of others. But I've never seen that as the idea of you're fasting from two things at once. You're fasting from approval at the same time as you're fasting from the food. And I just thought that was really good. And again, I depend, many of us, I imagine, when, when we fast, it is like literally no one else knows apart from maybe our family because you're not at mealtimes or whatever. And probably that's not the primary one. I wouldn't think, and I've been people boasting about how much they fast. But it's funny that, of course, what's happening in Matthew 6 isn't just don't tell anyone you're fasting. It's literally take steps to deceive people so that they believe you haven't been fasting. Like, wash your face, anoint your head with it. Make, make it look as much as possible as if you haven't been doing the spiritual thing. Now, I, clearly, again, there's a, what, I, what I said before still holds true here. It's a, or it's a very vivid expression of something that's not necessarily saying if you haven't poured oil over your head when you fast, you have not somehow done what Jesus meant. And I wouldn't want to get silly about it, but Jesus is clearly aware and is teaching us about, the, wanted to make us aware of the risks of performative spirituality, making other people notice what we're doing, saying actually when it comes to something like fasting, you actually have to work hard not to give it away because being hungry makes you feel like, I, I want to get some praise for the fact that I'm feeling this pang or whatever. Um, same with, with many things. Probably particularly true of fasting in a way, relative to, but I don't very often feel the need to boast about the fact that I've prayed. It just doesn't feel like a normal thing I would do. But fasting, sometimes you feel like, oh, I don't like this. I, I kind of wish I could tell someone just so that I could get a bit of a, oh, there, there, you know, or whatever it is. And I, I just think so, oh, it just needles me in my spirit. And it's just, it got me. I thought it was really great. He's, uh, he says in Matthew 5, you know, we've got these, you have heard, but I say. Matthew, you know, they, you've heard don't murder, I say don't hate, effectively. He says in Matthew 5, you're talking about the sin behind the sin. That behind the sin of murder is the sin of hate. 
Whereas in Matthew 6, what he's talking about is the sin behind the virtue. I thought, oh, oh. I just, it was a great point. As, yes, that's exactly what it is. It's like behind this virtuous practice could be a sinful motivation. So the Sermon on the Mount just sort of peels back both your sin and your virtue and goes underneath there. There might be a sin. Just be aware. Don't do that. Don't do it with that heart. That The heart matters, of course, more in many ways than the behavior. Yet at the same time, Jesus says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. Which is it, he says. And then comes later and uh, trying to give a, uh, gives a very good answer, I think, about the, basic, the kind of works, public, you know, public pursuit of justice or whatever, is very different from fasting and poverty of spirits. And then it's this nice line, poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness and joy and suffering form substance that is deeper than outward impressiveness. It's hard to perform the Beatitudes. And I really like that actually because you don't. How on earth would I put on being poor in spirit in front of people? In the end, I wouldn't be being poor in spirit if I did it. So you can't, you can't be, there's certain kinds of spiritual habits that you can display and show off about, but other things that if they're really going on, you can't at all. So just being mindful of like what you, we want people to see the good works of the church and have and people drawn to it. And they say, "Wow, these people love Jesus. Look at what they do with their whatever. They're, you know the things they're doing in the community, the things they where they give to the poor." But if you as a person are doing things in order to get praise, you're not really doing what Jesus is asking at all. And but if you've really got the beatitudes in your heart, you can't perform it anyway. In the eyes of the world, he says, a person resisting performance has just given up. But that's only because the world doesn't know what our life is for. And if you remain with Christ, resisting the performance of life, you will feel tension, pressure, and pain. So I found that section helpful. It's just if this, this, you've got to be real. Like this, if you don't, if you step out, it's like stepping out the rat race. You feel like you're missing out, stepping out of the, the Instagrammable, whatever. In my case, tweetable, but whatever it is for you. But you step out from that, you do feel a degree of dislocation. You do feel like you're missing out on things. You might feel painful at times. Um, and then he has this lovely chapter on stagnant grace. This is actually a lot of growth happens when nothing is happening. Stagnant grace, the idea, just everything looks like it's stuck. That's often when growth is really happening. A lot of healing, doesn't it? Physically in our bodies happens when you just stop doing things and your body re-knits itself. And that's often where the, the growing is actually taking, not at the great moments of achievement, but the bits that happen after that when nothing is going on. So this is partly a, a commendation of John's book, but it's, it's partly, I, I just think so much of it drills into Matthew 6 that I thought I wanted to share it in the context of the wisdom uh, of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, because I think it's so, so deep. Um, and one final comment to make on this, on this page, but just that along with the set prayer of Matthew 6, namely the Lord's Prayer, you also in the Sermon on the Mount have free prayer. In Matthew 7, which I hadn't noticed. I found a kind of fascinating idea that the laws, you obviously, when you pray, pray like this. And in some church traditions, you still, quite a lot of people say, in, say they say, read your Bible, say your prayers, which probably isn't, for many of us, the church tradition we come from, because it sounds more like you're reciting things. But in a lot of traditions, that's what they do. They'd go, you read your Bible, you say your, as in there are prayers you've been given to say out loud, like the Lord's Prayer. And yet at the same time, we've got, Free prayers, we've got, ask, it will be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock, the door will be open. Anyone who asks receives. To the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And your father knows what you need. All those sorts of... So, so do and ask boldly. And so you've got the sort of very ask for what's on your heart, charismatic leaning kind of prayer. And you've also got your... Well, the prayer like the prayer we started with this morning. Here's a form of words that you've been given and it's really good. Just use that and go through it. And I just think 
great wisdom in, in both, and they're both in the Sermon on the Mount, which I, I like. Any questions on performative spirituality or secret disciplines? Yeah. Hmm. I just, I, I don't think I can make it, I don't think I can get a rule for it. I just think it's you knowing your own heart, really. I don't think there's, I don't actually think it's what you say often. I mean, obviously you can say dumb things online, but I think it's, I think it's about, am I doing this? Because, and I, I shared with our staff team, actually, when we were in France a month ago, I realized this with my, the books I read, that I said to them, I was like, I actually think that in, in doing an update, like, I like recommending the best books I've read, and I probably want to keep doing that. But I realized that listing all the books I've read was just came out showing off. And, and maybe was. Maybe in part, it's like, I've spent a lot of time reading. I'd kind of like someone to know about it. Like that kind of thing. And I thought, actually, I don't need to do that. I think I can say, here's the best ones. So that's what I'm going to do this year. It's like, these are the top 20. And I've read some others as well, which people will know. But it doesn't, that doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter how many there were or what they were. So that was, to me, was a good example recently. of going. I just think I've got... A bit too, I kind of like people going, wow, look how much you read. I like that too much. And I like people going, how do you do it? And I, I well, don't say that, but then I also go underneath, I kind of like it when you say that, all those sorts of things. And I think you just get this, just being honest about your own heart and going, I don't, that I'm very vulnerable to that. Um, I kind of just like, well, again, they're sitting there just there. My, <laughs> I like showing off. Like it's, it's just it's kind of, some people are not wired that way. They're more likely to be anxious or fearful, but that isn't my danger. My danger is I'm more likely to wants everyone to think I was great. And so, but I still actually think that sometimes things you found in the, lots of things I find in scripture, I think that's the main reason I am on Twitter, really, is because I want to encourage people with truth that might help sustain them. So I, that's, otherwise I'd have come off long ago. So I, I still want to do that. But that, the books thing would be maybe a good example of where I felt that kind of, from this, probably from reading John, actually, I can't remember. Yeah, Carl. What would you say is, the, how do you know the difference between not receiving praise in that sort of <laughs> and great kind of way versus allowing people to show you honour which mm. is, you know, yes. outdo one another yes. in, in showing one another honour. Yes. probably don't do that to no. as British no. Christians because we're too busy saying, I don't want any praise. I don't yeah. want to tell you that I did something good. <laughs> yes. How do, you, how do you allow one? Um, no, that's really good. Uh, and I don't know how helpful the answer will be, but I think I... I, actually, I think we can simultaneously... I, I like... The, back to my shapes, right? So I think rather than there being a spectrum from, you know, pursuing and receiving honour and not wanting any and not receiving it, I think we have a, a two... We have two axes, a two-by-two two matrix. I think you can have people who are seeking honour and people who don't really care whether they're honoured or not. And you can have people who are good at receiving it and people who are bad at receiving it. And I think you could be in any of the four boxes... So I think there are people who don't seek honour at all and then are very bad at receiving it, which might be the thing, the, the classic British thing, which is I'm not actually after honour, but when it happens, I just feel excruciatingly awkward. And to be honest, I embarrass the person who's thanking me because I'm so weird about it. Well, that's, not, that's not what you want. 
you can have people who are seeking honor all the time and actually take it very well. And a lot of celebrities are probably quite good at that because they've got used to, they want honor, but they're actually also quite good at handling the dynamics at work of thanking people and really receiving it. And we don't want to be in either. You probably, in theory, could have people who are seeking honor all the time and then when they get it, they're terrible at handling it, which I don't know why you'd want to be in that box, but I bet someone is. Um, but where I think we need to aim for is the other box, which is the one where we're not looking for it at all, but we are, we are very gracious and receptive when people thank us. And that... Actually, I probably can say, I think I do that well now. I've learned how to receive praise. Well, just because it ha- when you preach a lot, it happens a lot. People come up and thank you for things. And it's just really, often really rude and disrespectful of the person to go, oh, no, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. Or I actually, oh, change the subject. Or sometimes I think you just have to, and I just had to, literally, I remember practicing, like, what am I going to do with my hands? Which I can't do with a microphone. But I remember, so, I'm sorry, because some of you have seen me do exactly this, and you're going to go, oh, no, he was doing that thing. But, um, but as in, I, I, honestly, I found I would often, I, I would literally have things I would do in my head and my eyes and my voice and my, in order to express, and some of these guys are laughing because they've seen me do it. Um, and I, but as a way of saying, I am taking what you say seriously, and I'm really grateful you've said that, and I'm glad it's encouraged you. I've probably done it to some of you already today because I had to learn how to do it because it was going to be a part of life. And if you pastor people and preach the word, people are grateful and they love God's, the, God's goodness and they often see you as a means they've discovered more of goodness of God. But to me, that's not in any way related to seeking the honour. You can live a life just like this and still be very gracious at receiving praise when it comes and say, praise God, that's wonderful. I'm so glad it blessed you. So I, I think I wouldn't, I'd encourage us not to think of it as opposites. I don't think they, they need to be. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, but what do you mean? Because um, you promoted your books here. Hmm. Yeah. But you're obviously taking into Yeah. No, that's good. I see what you mean, yeah. You're comfortable doing that here. Yeah. So you've obviously reconciled that yourself. Yeah. Obviously things won't be accessed unless they are in some way promoted. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And to be honest, I think I it was modelled very well in the, I don't know what, what, your, where, what your church background is, but Terry Virgo was always very good at doing this. He was just like the most gracious man. He was very, and is, very humble, but was just was fine at just getting up and saying, I've written this book, I think it'll help. And, I, and I, it's difficult to kind of describe, but I think you have to get to a point where you think, I'm not writing for people to say, oh, well done and thank you. And when they do, I have to do what Carl was just, we were talking about. Um, I realise that's not, that's not actually where I'm vulnerable. I'm not vulnerable to people saying, I really liked your book. I'm vulnerable to people saying, you're thinking I'm a really impressive Christian or really impressive man, husband. I mean, again, that's not, <laughs> anyone who knows our family is like, oh, there's not so much danger of that. But I think that's, as in, because I do, because I think it's, because I, in the end, I've, it's, a, it's to do with, my father's helped me a lot with this, it's a theology of gift. It's just going, the reason I can do that is in the end, because I've got, God's given me a gift and because I'm, I work for a large church where most of the real work's been done by other people. So I've got lots of time to read books and write things. And that's just the gift he's given me. And I'm, I praise God for that. And that but you know what I mean? That, as in, I don't find that difficult to defend at all. It doesn't go to my head in the same way, actually. What really what goes, to your, goes to my head is more the sort of, I want people to think I'm really spiritually impressive. Um, so I'm much more like, if I've shared the gospel with someone, I'm much more likely to want to tell everybody. That, that's as unimpressive as it is, that matters much more to me than people reading thousands of copies of books 
but, but other people will be different. And so you kind of got it. But this is what's so good about the Sermon on the Mount is it encourages you to probe your own heart a bit, not in a totally obsessive, intense way, but just go, all right, don't do this in order to be seen by others. And I can genuinely say with writing books, that's not why I'm doing it. But honestly, with, if I see somebody healed, that's, an, that's not a spiritual gift I've particularly got in abundance. It's happened a few times. But if I do, I'm bound to want to tell someone. I'm, like, I'm bound to tell lots. And hopefully some of that is because I want people to know the testimony. But if I'm honest, in my heart, it's partly, didn't I do something brave? I'm like, I, just, I just can know my heart. That's a, a vulnerability. So, yeah, we've got all of that going on. David. Yes, thinking about what to do with compliments and things like that. I mean, it was Connie Ten Boom who said that she she she, she accepted compliments while like an opera singer would get flowers thrown at them at the end of the performance, hmm. and she would smile and she would pick them up, and then at the end of the day, on her own, she would present them to Jesus and say, hmm. "These are." Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's a beautiful picture. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, one more on um, on the uh, the sapiential, and then we're gonna then we're gonna keep keep moving in this session. Jump onto a biblical reading of Matthew, but I just I like thinking through the paradoxes of the kingdom or the proverbial paradoxes. I said earlier, you know, the don't judge others, but by the way, don't put your pearls before swine. So how do we? That's a, one of those examples, and there are loads of them, particularly in Matthew chapter thirteen. These proverbial paradoxes. So across the top is a sort of just so you remind you what parables we have the sower the weeds the mustard seed the leaven the treasure the pearl and the net and there are all sorts of paradoxes or tensions that take place in Matthew 13 that we're intended to see the kingdom is both this and that and so for instance on the are you in the Christian life to expect lots of success in the growth of the kingdom yes the parable of the sower you're going to see a hundredfold fruit or you might 30-fold fruit from some of the seeds you plant the parable of the net, you're going to have lots of good stuff. The parable of the weeds, you're also going to have lots of wheat. But on the other hand, you're going to see lots of failure. Three out of the four seeds you sow are going to bear no fruit at all. It's either going to get eaten or it's going to get choked or it's not going to have enough soil. So you're going to have lots of failure. The parable of the net has also got half junk and you know random gubbins and bits of plastic or who knows what. And the parable of the weeds, obviously a lot of weeds there. So you're, in, you're going to expect both lots of success and lots of failure. Are you going to expect transformation or opposition? And the answer is yes. Is the kingdom going to cause lots of people to hate it, or is it going to transform the world and gradually change everything? And the answer is, yeah, both of those things. It's like leaven. It's going to work through the whole world and change everything. And like the wheat and the weeds, you're going to have to wait because there's going to be a constant tangle between the fruit of the kingdom and the opposition to it until the judgment when they all get taken out and sorted. Are you going to expect a massive breakthrough where there's recognition for the kingdom or are you going to labor in obscurity for many, many generations? And again, the history of the church, not just Matthew 13, says yes, both of those things. The breakthrough is the kingdom's like a mustard mustard seed that's tiny and then becomes huge and all the birds come and rest in its branches. But it's also like leaven that gets hidden and just gradually leavens the flower and no one even notices it has. So are are you going to get breakthrough or labor in obscurity? Yes. Is the kingdom of God a gift or is it something, a sacrifice for which you have to pay a, a, great, a huge amount? And I, I've taught on this loads. It's one of my favorite messages to do. But the, the free gift that costs you everything, the, the treasure and the pearl, in both cases, are this is a gift that somebody, the guy didn't earn at all. He stumbled across it. He found it in a field. But he then had to sacrifice everything in order to get it. So it was both free and unbelievably expensive. And of course, the most valuable things in life are. 
If you're married, if you have children, if you have a close friendship, you're like, that, those things are not things I could ever have deserved, but they are also things for which I've had to make enormous sacrifices in order for them to be retained. I have to, have to drop everything else to receive them. And I always do this illustration where I get this crystal decanter I was given for my wedding by a friend of mine who's a professor in America. And uh, I stand at one end of the stage with a crystal decanter. Some of you have seen me do it. And on the other side of the stage is someone carrying a whole load of wooden blocks and say, these are all the things that you currently have in your life. This is the all that you have. And this thing here is the un, un, irreplaceable prize of the kingdom. And then I throw, you, know, you do a big build-up, it's kind of comedy, but then you throw the whole thing across the stage and the person drops all the blocks and catches the decanter and says, this, this person has not earned this thing I've given them, but they have had to sell everything they have in order to receive it. And that's the kingdom. That's, that's what It's both a gift and a sacrifice. And then is the kingdom now or not yet? And again, the answer is yes. The kingdom is now. The sower, you're going to see a lot of this fruit break through now. The mustard tree, the, king, the birds of the, air, of the air are going to make their nest in its branches now. But there's also a not yet. There's a, an eschatological judgment frame. You have to wait till the judgment day for the wheat and the weeds to be separated, for the net to be sorted into good and bad. And so you get loads in this one chapter. That's five, at least five different you know, might, well, paradoxes might be too strong, tensions or proverbial puzzles, but ways in which the kingdom pulls in both directions at once. And of course, that's not the only passage where this happens. Um, I think you get it with the, um, the remarkable, that strange story, Matthew 22. Is it 1 to 14, the wedding banquet? Um, well, you've got that. That is the most inclusive and exclusive story, isn't it? It's so weird. So go and invite all these people, and then they all say, no, we can't come. And then it's kind of, we'll kill them then. Okay, well, that's, <laughs> that's a, bit, a bit drastic. But also, okay, I want you to go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. And then they do. And then one of them, he says, why aren't you wearing the wedding clothes? Now throw them into the outer darkness where there's weakness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. You're like, whoa, this is, this is simultaneously an incredibly inclusive, let's welcome everybody in, and an incredibly exclusive, if you're not wearing the right clothes, you don't get to stay. Stories simultaneously. It's really fascinating. And obviously it will make us wonder, what are the wedding clothes? Now, what does he mean? I was just looking this up yesterday. It's just really fascinating. Um, Luther, unsurprisingly. I mean, what do you think Martin Luther thought the wedding clothes were? Faith, of course he did. And he then decided to slap down everybody else in church history. On this text, he says, all the fathers were dreaming, like Jerome, Augustine, and others, since they related this text to love. You imagine him going, idiots. You know, like they thought this was about love. It's like, obviously not. It's about faith. You know, think, no, I think, think, I think Jerome and Augustine might not have been dreaming as much as you think, Brother Martin. Um, but there's this, I think it probably is, that I think it probably is love. And I actually think that some of the imagery, Dale Bruner's good on this, connects the idea of being clothed to what Paul says in Colossians, but uses a lovely example as well of Joseph, where Joseph is brought out of prison, but then as he approaches Pharaoh, to approach Pharaoh, he changes his clothes. And steps in like, I'm now wearing the appropriate thing for the encounter with the king I've come here to have. And I thought I was a really nice, I would never have seen it myself. I just thought it was a lovely Old Testament callback to go, I'm not saying Matthew's alluding to it, but I think it's quite a helpful way of understanding how the, the clothes have to fit the, the person and their status. Um, and even the father clothing the prodigal son. It's like, quick, put a new robe on him. Like, he's now out of the mire. He's in this, let's clothe him new, uh, with new clothes. And I think that's the... The, the gist of what's happening in that story. But it's another one of those very paradoxical stories. You think, is this an inclusive story or an exclusive story? A couple of weeks ago, I was leading communion here, 
and a member of our church came up and said, I was really, I'm really grateful for the way you led communion today because I, I just think communion is such an inclusive moment. And you included everybody and you welcomed everybody. And I, I quickly realized this is, there's, a, there's a bit of a trap here because he's clearly heard something I don't feel like I've quite said. But he thinks basically I've, I've done it without making reference to sin and repentance first. I'm like... I don't think I did, but if I did, I've got to make sure that he doesn't think that I'm now going, that's fine, and oh, thank you very much. So like, the thing is, it is an incredibly inclusive and an incredibly exclusive moment, the Lord's Supper. Everyone is welcome, but you're welcome to come and eat at the Lord's table, and you can't eat the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So it's got to be both. And I just, it's quite interesting, you're often surfing that paradox in church life, aren't you? Very open door, very narrow way. How, how are both of those things true? And of course... They are, the, you know, the, the gate and all these different pictures. So lots of paradoxes to the kingdom. And Jesus is, again, it's a wisdom literature trope or way of speaking, but it's designed to provoke lots of thought about how exactly that works and how to implement it. Any questions on paradoxes of the kingdom or any sapientialism? Um, Tom and then Steve. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So very good question. So in the most of the parables God is the major actor. Certainly in this group of parables God is the major actor. So but you've obviously read the story the, the treasure and the pearl parables as if we are we're the ones doing the searching. Um, and the kingdom is the treasure rather than God is searching and we're the treasure. Could you comment on that? Um, so, interestingly, both, both the treasure and the pearl have opposite actors. Which you, you know, so, we're in Matthew 13, 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So, in, if we just had that one, we'd say, well, the kingdom is the treasure. Right? The kingdom's not the man. The kingdom is the treasure, and the man is the person who finds the kingdom and sells all he has in order to get it. So the treasure parable, I don't think that does work as God searching for us. I think the treasure parable only works as a person searching for the kingdom. But against what I was just saying, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So in the first parable, the kingdom's like the treasure, but in the second parable, the kingdom's like the merchant. And so some people have said, like, you were, effectively, you're right about the pearl one, and I'm right about the treasure one. Now, I, I personally think that I might be just overreading the kingdom of heaven. is like, I think in both cases, he's saying, here's another example of the kingdom. Let me tell you, it's like, the, like let's, let's talk about a merchant, and, or let's talk about treasure. So I don't think it's, perhaps that might be a bit over-specific. Having said that, I've given quite a lot of pretty over-specific comments in the last day or so of exegesis, and maybe, maybe that is what Matthew's doing, I don't know. Um, but certainly the treasure one, which I think is also the one that has that lovely phrase, then in his joy, so that's why I use the free gift that costs you everything, it's the treasure he found, whereas the merchant implies someone's searching. So the pearls is sought for, whereas the treasure is stumbled across. 
don't think it really makes sense to say God just stumbled across us in a field, but I, I could see the case for someone saying the pearl is more like God coming and seeking and saving the lost. I, I would buy that more. So if you want, want to hedge your bets, take Tom for the pearls, me for the treasure for the win. How's that? I, I don't know, but I, that, that's a, it's a good question. Any others? You happy, Steve? Was that what you were going to say? That was your question. Okay, what do you think? <laughs> it's too late to ask, isn't it? Okay, right. Let's um, let's move. So we're going to have another break at half four. So I want to move on and start the start the next one. Um, I've called it rather absurdly a biblical reading of Matthew. I mean, how else would you read read Matthew? But what I mean is, reading Matthew in light of the rest of Scripture and understanding it as a way of thinking about doctrine, hermeneutics, and and so on. Um, and the way that Matthew, particularly the way Matthew handles the Old Testament, rather than the typology, which is he's telling the whole story to evoke the whole story. But what does he do with Scripture itself? What does he, how does he handle it? Um, and the first one I want to talk about is a, a, Matthew's hermeneutics. So what, does, what kind of hermeneutical keys, what interpretative tools does Matthew seem to be using in his gospel? Um, now he's obviously... A major, the most obvious one you see when you start reading chapter one is there is a hermeneutic of fulfillment. That is, Matthew is obsessed. I don't think it would be too strong to say that. Obsessed with the idea that Jesus is fulfilling or the story of Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. There are 10 formal fulfillment citations in Matthew and three other quotations. And these are, these are actually front-loaded. So if you look at that list, you'd see an awful, nearly half of them appear before the baptism. So nearly half the quotations and fulfillment statements in Matthew happen by chapter 3. So it's a very, very strong theme at the beginning of Matthew, which then I think becomes, it sort of fades into the background as other, other themes emerge more prominently later in the book. But in addition to that, there are 60 explicit Old Testament quotations and then dozens and dozens of other allusions. So Matthew likes the Bible. I mean, it wouldn't surprise anyone, but there's a lot of... He's, he's doing a lot of work with Scripture itself. And often that fulfillment is many-layered. For example, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the... I'm, I know that this might reopen the whole... Ah, who's writing this? Is it, you know, but we're not allowed to ask those anymore. Um, but then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So what is that illusion of fasting 40 days and 40 nights? What's that about? And now, you'd say, Jesus is Israel. So Jesus is the, you know, the wilderness period, hungry, 40 years, testing. This is clearly the story of Israel in the wilderness, and it is. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? It's a wilderness, hungry, oh, I've been in the desert. Of course, I haven't eaten anything, and now I've got a time of testing. That's just the story of the book of Numbers, or whatever. But then you say, well, hang on, Moses himself fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and that's the phrase Matthew uses. He, he could have said 40 days, or... 40-somethings, but he deliberately says 40 days and 40 nights. That takes us back to Moses and, and, and others as well. But fasting 40 days and 40 nights, this must be not just Jesus as Israel, but Jesus as Moses going up Mount Sinai, preparing to receive the law. So there's that level of fulfillment because he's about to give the Sermon on the Mount. So isn't he Moses before Sinai, not just Israel at Massa or Meribah? So what, but then there's another layer, which I, I like this one, take it or leave it again. But so what is Jesus doing during this time? You know, I, we don't often think that. Like, so he wakes up in the morning, presumably he falls asleep at night. What's he doing? Like today, wander around waiting to be tempted. Avoid devil. I mean, what, as in what's taking place in the day? And 
and I think the, the answer is, is found actually even in if you, another layer of this in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Is he interceding for Israel? It doesn't say he is. But the illusion here in Deuteronomy 9, so I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you and I prayed to the Lord. So I wonder, actually, it's not just that Jesus is being like Moses and not eating. It's that fasting and prayer are connected throughout the Bible. They're connected throughout Matthew's gospel as we've already seen at some length in the sermon. And when it talks about Jesus fasting 40 days and 40 nights, we know from Deuteronomy that what Moses did during the 40 days and 40 nights was to intercede for Israel that they might not be destroyed. So is that what Jesus is doing? Okay, can't make too much of it, I guess. But I think this is what I mean, that there is various texts being fulfilled in even sometimes one story. And this came up yesterday. People said, so hang on, is he Israel or Solomon in that story? I think, well, yeah, both, I think. I think that's how passages work. And alongside that, we have what I call it, uh, I can't remember who I learned this from. I think it might have been Richard Hayes in Echoes, his Echoes of Scripture book. Um, but I may have misattributed that. A hermeneutic of mercy. So this is the centrality of mercy as a theme through which to understand the Old Testament and the way that Matthew understands the way you should read the Old Testament. This is because in two separate places, Matthew plays the Hosea card. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Hosea 6 is great, isn't it, Charles? Yeah, big fan of Hosea 6. Yeah, excellent. Okay. Um, sorry, Charles preached it a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And he does that, of course, comes in... With, with, with these references, both in Matthew 9 and then in Matthew 12. And in the first example, Jesus is defending eating with tax collectors and sinners because it is the sick rather than the well who need healing. And that's also drawn from Hosea 6. So let's return to the Lord for he will heal us. And then a few verses later, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So Jesus is drawing on Hosea 6 and saying, this is what and this is what I want us to be. We are a people of mercy, and we are people for whom mercy should override the other considerations, even those of sacrifice. That's the heart of what the godly life is. In the second example, he's defending his right to feed the disciples, which we looked at yesterday with the David's holy bread story. Um, and effectively, basic human needs matter more than ritual observances. So that is, you know, the Holy Bread story. We read it yesterday, so we won't go back to it today. But that idea, you know, haven't you read what David did? The people were hungry. David provided food. Well, in the same way I'm doing that, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So you think, okay, so you are, Jesus seems to be saying that the mercy of God to serve basic human needs matters more than the rituals of the sacrificial system. And that that's more what God cares about. So if you preserve, as the Sabbath debate often does, you preserve ritual purity at the expense of being merciless towards the hungry, you've misunderstood what the law is for. Which is, in a way, is Matthew's version of the Good Samaritan. Because that is basically the Good Samaritan. I mean, the Good Samaritan's got broader themes, you know, who is my neighbor? But the idea that you've got a priest and a Levite who avoid because they don't want to get contaminated, and then you've got another guy who's prepared to serve the, the poor, broken person, saying, yeah, mercy, better than sacrifice. And so I think, you might, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the Good Samaritan is Luke's version of this. Um, but I think it's pretty powerful, and so he's very interested in that particular citation from Hosea. So Richard Hayes, yes, it was Richard Hayes. Okay, Richard Hayes says, in two places, Matthew tellingly inserts references to Hosea 6.6 into a narrative taken over from Mark in order to emphasize the hermeneutical primacy of mercy. That is, he takes Mark's story, which obviously Matthew, there's a lot, Matthew uses Mark, but he puts Hosea 6 verse 6 into it twice. 
So it's not just, oh, I've got, I, that was a good illustration. This is like, no, I really care about this. This is, so Jesus is clearly doing it, but Matthew wants us to make sure that we've clocked that that's what he's doing. And to that, we can obviously add the primacy of mercy in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful. For the, so one of the nine statements about the way in which the, the kingdom of God works. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And the fact that when he lists what the weightier matters of the law are, he says justice and mercy and faith or faithfulness. That's interesting. I think, again, if I didn't have the end of that sentence and someone said, you've read the whole of the rest of the New Testament, what do you think Jesus said? The weightier matters of the, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, blank and blank and blank. What do you think he said? I might well have got justice and I might have got faith. I don't think I would have said mercy as one of the weightier matters of the law. But actually, when you read Matthew, you think he's always, he's very keen that mercy is in the midst of it. Um, is your book finished now, Nat? Yeah, Nat's just written a whole book on mercy as a biblical theme, as I'm looking forward to. And in doing that, what Jesus is doing is he's deliberately wading into the debate over whether the prophetic books should be used as a lens through which to read the Torah. And he's saying, yes, yes, they really are. So that's obviously a very live debate between Pharisees and Sadducees. Do you just do you read the law because that's inspired? And the prophets are later fluff. Or the prophets are kind of valid to read, but they're not inspired in the same way. A bit like you and I might think about the Apocrypha, actually. It's, not, it's, not, not the, it's probably not the worst analogy for the way that a Sadducee tradition would view the prophets. Valid, interesting, tells a lot of Israel's story, but it's not inspired like the Torah is. Or do you see it all as inspired, like more like the Pharisees would? And therefore you believe in things like resurrection, which come out later but aren't there earlier. And Jesus is here and elsewhere, as clearly as he does with, of course, the, the, the debate with the Sadducees about the, the woman with seven husbands, said, yeah, this is... This, you absolutely can read the law through the lens of the prophets, and particularly in this case, Isaiah, and his emphasis on mercy. Questions? Any comeback comments? Um, yeah, I, I thought of that, but I mean, what, how would you do it? What, I like stretching it. Okay, yeah. 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 No, I, I like that. No, I, I, let's go with it. No, because I do, I mean, Noah is clearly elsewhere in the New Testament, a type of baptism. Although that is weird, because the whole point of Noah's Ark is he didn't get wet, which I always think is a bit of a strange parallel. But yeah, um, but yeah, you're right. Um, no, I like that. I, I wonder, I had the 40 days, 40 nights in my head, because that's obviously in the kids' Bible, that's... Is it in Carl's? I'm not sure. But in my kid's Bible, anyway, 40 days and 40 nights. You can't remember. <laughs> but um, in the inspired text of the Lafferton version. Um, but yeah, so I did, it's one of the things you remembered, isn't it? If you, if you read kids' Bibles, 40 days, 40 nights. So you think of the flood. So maybe, yeah, the baptism connection. That's really interesting. Okay, one more and then we will, oh, sorry, Simon Walker. Um, question around the Yeah. Compassion is cited as a motivation for Jesus' healing or for his sending out of the apostles or his prayer with me over Jerusalem. Compassion seems to be a motivating factor to bring heaven to earth, if you like. Yeah. I'm wondering how that connects with this hermeneutic and how that provides an insight with some of the clusters of miracle passages that we get. Mm. 
Yes. Yeah, so mercy and compassion are very closely, they're very close together on the Venn diagram, aren't they? And, and although they're, they're different words in Greek, but in the Hebrew Old Testament, mercy is sometimes used interchangeably with compassion and with steadfast love and with grace. Like it is a sort of a, there's a lot of overlap. Mercy doesn't almost have its own word in the Old Testament, but it sort of, it collides with all of it, gracious, compassionate, and steadfast love. And so I think probably we are intended to see the references to compassion and mercy as of a piece together, even though there are different Greek words behind them. And yeah, that's, I mean, obviously he had compassion like sheep without a shepherd. Um, I, th- I think it, it probably seems more to be, um, would I be going too far if I said that the, the compassion seems to be more like something that you, you feel, more like something that happens inside as a, like a sort of emotional word relative to mercy, which is more an expression of a sort of what you actually do um, and your nature. But I might be overreading that. I just, when I say Jesus felt, it's almost like compassion is a word that you, you feel more than you feel mercy towards. You show mercy, you feel compassion. But I think the two are still very closely connected. And so, yes, I think they all tell that wider story of the mercy of, of God in Christ. Yeah. Okay, one more, and then we'll then we'll break. It's a it's a bit of a beast of a table, folks. Um, but there's a cloud just to kind of animate things. Um, hashtag clip art. Um, Matthew's interweaving of scripture. So this is Richard Hayes at his best in his book Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels. And oh, this is just a his books on Paul and if you ever read see Richard Hayes has written a book called Echoes of Anything. Um, I, I think buying it and working through it, it would be a, a good use of time. But that's what um, a lot of this is, is based on. And I, I hope this will help you because if you haven't already, you'll probably, if you study Matthew in detail or want to preach on it, you'll notice that he regularly, well, we might say, conflates. And a more skeptical interpreter would say bungles or, or, or bodges different biblical passages. Because he regularly does in the sense that he says, I'm going to give you a version of a, a prophetic fulfillment citation that involves mostly this text with various phrases borrowed from that text stuck into it. And obviously the you know, proud member of the inerrancy club here, but people who believe in inerrancy really struggle with that because we go, hang on a second, that, that must be wrong. Like, how are you allowed to just change what it says by making a pastiche of these two, two passages? And I do think it's important that we understand what Matthew is doing. Notice that he's done it because otherwise the first time you come across it is by someone in your church reads Bart Ehrman or something and they come to you and you're like, I'd never known that. Maybe the Bible is completely wrong. Oh no, I'm, you know, ministry and maybe the church and that person are all in trouble. Um, so here's a few examples, and then look, let's look at what he's doing um, and why it's okay that he has, or in fact, good. Um, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Which, of course, your citation little notes, if you've got those kind of Bibles, would probably say comes from Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And then a weird line. I don't know what that's doing there. Sorry about that. Um, and so you'd say, oh, that's close enough. But actually, and, and, it, and it is, right? It's clearly he's, that's the one he's alluding to. But along with it, he's inserted a phrase that has been drawn from 2 Samuel 5 and verse 2. You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince of Israel. So Matthew's preserving the, the sense and the flow and the spirit of Micah, but he's drawing from Samuel as well. And he doesn't seem to see any problem with doing that. He's, he's not therefore going, I am misquoting. Um, and 
to be honest, many of us do this, if we're preachers, we probably do this quite a lot. We'll quote something and put other phrases, I've probably done it today without realising I have, and then put other phrases into it to fill out the content, partly because we're doing it from memory, and partly because we think of those two texts as essentially meaning the same thing. So we blur them together. Of course, we do the, the third habit, which is great for where you blur the two biblical texts together, along with a Christian song, you remember. <laughs> and, then, and then that gets thrown in there. Who was the, was the Mount of Crucifixion earlier? He gets, and just, oh no. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, but you, but you do, you conflate things, and you do it partly reflecting something that's fundamentally true, which is that those two texts are of a piece with each other and each should be used to help us interpret the other that's not like at any point Matthew saying and this is spoken in the prophet Micah and nowhere else so he just quotes reasonably freely incorporating one into another does it again in the you know the very famous text that we read at Christmas Galilee of the Gentiles the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and a shadow of death on them a light has dawned you might say what's wrong with that that's exactly what it says in Isaiah but it isn't what it says is the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So where does he get sitting from? That's a strange turn of phrase. Well, he gets that from Isaiah 42, later in the same book. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. So Matthew again is drawing, saying Isaiah's, yeah, there's this idea of people who are in darkness, but I want you to see that this is about liberation of prisoners, not just liberation of Galilee. So he's drawing some of the content from Isaiah 42 into Isaiah 9 to help us see the connection. 548, you must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that's obviously not a quotation as such, but it is a conflation of you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, and you shall be perfect before the Lord your God. It's kind of bringing the, the two come together to form the, the form of words Jesus uses. Take my yoke, and we've looked at this one, so I won't go. Oh, actually, no, we... We didn't look at the Jeremiah 6. But the take my yoke, the gentle and lowly one, is taken, he's adapting Sirach, but he's putting and find rest for your souls from Jeremiah 6. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Well, Zechariah doesn't start like that. It just says, behold, your king is coming. But say to your daughter of Zion comes from Isaiah 62. And then uh, this is a, probably one you may well have noticed if you've done any digging on the, some of the problem texts in Matthew. And they took the 30 pieces of silver the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. And that, as you probably realize, is a, if you read it before, is a combination of Zechariah and Jeremiah. So it's mostly Zechariah, throw it to the potter, so the 30 pieces of silver, but then with Zach Jeremiah thrown in, I bought the field and 17 shekels of silver. So it's a combination, mainly the column on the left is the main one, and then the elements of the one on the right in bold are inserted into it. And it just, I think, reflects that Matthew's got a very holistic vision of Scripture and how it works. But I wonder if it helps us with the very strange reference to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, being killed in Matthew 23, which is one of the hardest passages to explain in the book. So if you refresh your memory by thinking, I don't very often think about Berechiah, so let's go there. Um, but Matthew 23, and then towards the very end... Verse 35. Therefore I send you prophets. So this is just a verse or two before. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. 
So we have a, we have a problem there in the sense that Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, and the Zechariah who gets murdered between the sanctuary and the altar are, at least from most plain readings of the Old Testament, different Zacharias. Um, and that's probably, some of us have got, who's, who, who's a study Bible person? Has anybody got a study Bible they can rummage in and just give us a quick, what does your study Bible say about it? Huh? You haven't got it here. Has anybody got a study Bible with them? Mum? Oh, okay. So it doesn't tell you what to do with the problem at all. Yeah, I mean, it is like an A to Z, isn't it? I mean, it, in English, of course, it's literally able to Zechariah. But yeah, so that's, that's obviously the, we, the first murder of the Old Testament and the last one. But I, but I wonder if the solution for us is actually found that Matthew is doing the same thing as he's doing in all of these places. So he's deliberately bringing the son of, Zachar- son of Berechiah to bring out the idea that Zechariah, the, the, the murdered Zechariah prophet and the Zechariah who wrote the canonical book, Zechariah, are both being evoked because they're giving the full range of biblical witness of murders. So he wants the, mur- the murdered Zechariah has to be in there because that's the point he's making. All the blood from the first guy who got killed to the last. But is he throwing in the son of Barakiah as well to help us remember the other Zechariah and all the things he prophesied and all the things that Jesus has quoted from him as well? So I don't know. But I wonder if that helps us with what's otherwise a pretty sticky problem. I'm going to pause there. We can pick up questions if you'd like to at the, at the start. We're going to take a break for 28 minutes and start again at 5 o'clock for the final hour of today. <laughs>